The Critically Human channel explores the human experience around the world and throughout time, with topics that range from the search for beauty to the quest for power, featuring concerts, interviews, lectures, and cutting-edge research projects. Visit uctv.tv slash criticallyhuman. It's my great pleasure, my great honor uh, to be able to interview Ernie Lowe today. Um, I think that there's a lot of... Um, a lot of what Ernie does fits so well here um, uh, at UC Merced, uh, considering our students and our faculty and our sort of mission to aid uh, the Central Valley uh, in uh, in its mission, right, um, in the university's mission. So I wanted to set a couple of questions to ask Ernie sort of about the collection, about his life, uh, about how he came to the Central Valley, and hopefully uh, we can spark a really interesting discussions around art and activism uh, and the kind of work that his photography in particular did. Uh, so I want to get just a little bit, begin with just a little bit of background information, Ernie. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, where you're from, where you were born, how you came to the Central Valley and what, and what, what led you to uh, do the kind of work that you do? Well, I grew up in Southern California as, as a third generation native son. My mother had grown up on a cattle ranch in the Sierra Foothills. My dad was a, an Oki who came out before the Dust Bowl. And so I had a, a strong interest in the uh, culture of, of the Anglos in California. I started photographing in 1960 in the fields and the camps and the communities in, uh, up and down the San Joaquin Valley. I had heard a broadcast on KPFA, Pacifica Radio, where a little bit later I was working. Bard McAllister from the American French Service Committee, a field, very uh, noted field agent doing wonderful or community organizing. He was describing the conditions and saying, there's little change from what Dorothea Lang and Ben Sean and other Farm Security Administration photographers had photographed in the valley. And I, I do wish that someone would come out and document what is happening now. And it just struck me immediately that this was something I wanted to do, something I must do. And I just started by making contact with the organizing effort of the American Friend of the uh, Agricultural Workers Organizing Committee. And, and they would introduce me into camps and get me started. Then I would just go up and down the highways, the byways, come to a field and see people working, hop out of the car and start photographing. You mentioned Dorothea Lang, um, uh, Bard McAllister, some of these, uh, and then, you know, the, the photographers of the Farm Services Administration. Can you tell me a little bit about your relationship with some of them, perhaps Dorothea? I, I often said that your work uh, belongs in that same pantheon of the work of the FSA photographers and Dorothea Lang in particular. I wonder if there's sort of a personal connection there or was it just sort of inspired by their work? Um, you know, how you got started in photography in particular versus any other kind of, you know, sort of documentary work. I know you did some interviews, um, but what was it about? Or was, is there something about that relationship that brought you to photography? 
Well, I, I was studying documentary photography and filmmaking at the San Francisco Art Institute in 1958, 59. And Dorothea, you know, at the time that she was just beginning to struggle with cancer, came and did a wonderful workshop with us. So I, I, I had that initial connection. And then after I'd photographed for a year, I, I asked if I could come visit and was able to sit down with her and show her some of my prints. And she, after looking at a couple dozen of them, she looks at me and says, this is my family album. And I was so humbled by that. So it just brought tears to my eyes to be recognized that way. Then she asked if she could help in any way, and she she would loan me a camera for some of my trips and give me a, a little a bit of money to help pay some of my film and uh, paper developer costs, so forth. Yeah, I imagine even then it was a, a pretty. Um sort of capital intensive project of, of, of film, of, of capturing film and developing film and, uh, you know, looking at negatives, et cetera. You mentioned, well, I think one of the things that has always struck me about your work um, that I think separates you from some of many of the other photographers, especially photographers of migrant um, families is just two things. One, I think is the sort of, quotidian aspect of their lives that you capture that isn't necessarily misery or or oppression but that captures the human spirit that captures the resistance captures the the joy the the um you know the resiliency uh in a lot of these folks and the other that i think separates a lot of the work that you do is that you were intent really on documenting um the organized struggle, right? So the AWOC, the, the union meetings, the labor leaders, um, what, what, may, what accounted for that kind of um, activism within your work, right? What accounted for that lens that you, that you had of, of, of those communities? I, I, I grew up in the, in the depression my my parents though both had good jobs through throughout. We had owned our home, so you know we were we were comfortably poor. And my my dad had a big heart, and I I think that there was something that I gained from him that that gave me the compassion and and the ability to go out and talk with people, and very simply ask to take their pictures very, very seldom got turned down. And so that the activism, I, I think, came as much as anything from my dad and from my, just my, my general interest in improving the world. And then that got focused in farm labor because the connection with the people was so deep. I, I'm, I'm working on a, a book of portraits now, about 60 pages of full-page portraits. I'm calling it Here I Am. And each portrait has this incredible, intense 
presence to it. Even even photographing a, a wino sitting with a bottle under under a water tank, he'd be looking out at me and acknowledging, "Here I am, and I'm. I, I may I may be drunk, but I'm going to let I'm going to communicate to the world through your lens." I think that's so um, uh, amazing and, and powerful, and it's a, you know for for a group of people that are often invisible uh, and set aside and pushed aside and cast aside, and for your photography to be able to to highlight their humanity and bring them to the forefront, I think is uh, invaluable, and it's an invaluable uh, work that you do. Um, can you describe a little bit sort of the environment that you were photographing in terms of the organizing environment that was happening? You were present for some really important meetings of AWOC's history. Uh, you know, George Ballas was around, Maria Moreno, um, you know, some really important organizing, sort of the early days of the UFW or the transition from the AWOC to the UFW. Um, can you describe what that feeling was like and, you know, what, what it was like, especially here, particularly here in the Central Valley, um, the kind of energy that you felt, the kind of movement that you saw, that you saw happening around you? Well, the, the, there were really two two worlds there. But one was the the professionals running the organizing campaign, and most of them didn't really understand farm labor very well, and and they give pretty pompous speeches, and uh, <laughs> there there was hardly ever any open discussion. And then the AFL-CIO pulled out the money for organizing from AWOC. And Hank Anderson, who had been research director, organized a conference. And it was two days in Strathmore. A, just a, a wonderful active participation. Uh, the photos I took then, you know, when I look back at them now, they they, they look as though um, they 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 were uh, really heroic images, and and the people speaking from the floor. There's there's one in particular, a Latina, standing with her baby in her arms, and speaking out. You know, first kind of timidly picking up her hand, raising her hand, and, and then speaking very strongly about the conditions that she and her husband worked under and how hard it was to feed their kid, feed their kid. A lot of those photos are so, they feel almost, they feel so alive, right? You can feel the energy, you can feel like the hope, you can feel the the frustration. It's, it's um, I mean, they're incredibly, incredibly powerful. Um, I wonder, you know, if, because I know you recorded some of those meetings as well, but I feel like somehow the photos do, do more work than, than the recordings. Like, it's just like hearing somebody like Maria Moreno's voice and then seeing her it's 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 inspiring really um i wanted to shift gears just a little bit because i know that you also uh write poetry 
Um, I know that you're also, uh, you know, expressing, you know, sort of um, uh, a lot of this, a lot of, a lot of the emotion and thought that you have about these issues in, in poverty and poetry as well. I was wondering if you could tell, talk to me a little bit about what that process is like, whether you take inspiration from your own photos or whether your poetry is, um, you know, doing some other kind of work. Um, I did not write many poems about the farm labor scene, but but I was continually writing poems, you know, calling for social justice, economic justice, and and call, calling out the 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 robber barons of, of our country, often connecting you know, to the details in my own life, the place where I, I would li be living and going back and forth between what I was experiencing very directly and what I experienced through, through reading periodicals like The Nation and The New Republic, Progressive, Progressive, I have stoned weekly. So, so I, I, I did write a, a a poem on uh, Teveston, exploring the origin origin of the name. Who there was a fellow named Lloyd Tevis who had this enormous land holding in the valley, and it, it, I tried to find any signs of him being remembered. And Teveston, this poor black community on Highway ninety nine is the only memorial to Lloyd Tevis, this great landowner who would take a day to ride across his possessions. I think that serves as a really good transition here because I was going to ask you about the Teveston photos, but more importantly, I think, uh, well, I should say for the audience is not aware that um, a few years ago, uh, the Fresno County, the Fresno Historical Society um, staged an exhibit of yours photos um, entitled The Black Okies that focused on the community of Teveston. Uh, and I encourage it, all of you to go back and, and look at that collection. What I wanted to ask about, though, was that uh, in 2015, you returned to Teveston uh, with a lot of those photos. And I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about what that trip was like and some of the folks you met and, you know, their reactions to the photos that you had. And I know that you learned a lot about the photo, about some of the folks that you photographed as well. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that. Well, that got started when I got a call from Mark Arax, the, the great ballet journalist, uh, saying that he was producing a film and he just learned that on Teveston, and he just learned that there was this historical archive that I had uh, recorded. I, I've done both uh, voice recordings and many documentary photos in, Te in Teveston uh, in, uh, throughout the, the time in the 60s I was working. And he invited me to come down and explore and see if we could find any of the people I had photographed. So we, we went to a church in Teveston uh, I think it actually was in Pix Pixley, right near Teveston, uh, Pixley First Baptist. And after the service, we laid out photographs from the 60s. 
and people just started going, oh my God, that's Bertha Jean, oh, oh that's uh, Bertha May, that's, uh, that's uh, Benjamin. I get, and, and, and oh, that's me, they're, that's me, they're 12 years old, three years old, whatever, and taking pictures of the pictures and just go, going back and forth, all thrilled with seeing that. And, and we, we had that same experience in South Dos Palos, where I just spent maybe a, a couple of hours taking pictures, but very memorable pictures. Yeah, I imagine it had a little bit of a kind of family reunion feel to it, right? Folks that they hadn't hadn't seen, other, you know, relatives or friends in those photos in the long in a long, long time. So, I imagine. And, and then I was able to to take new pictures of of them and and also fi find out about what had happened with them in their lives. And th there was no one still working in farm labor. They'd gotten out. They had parents who encouraged the kids, so so that so none none were working in real fancy jobs, but they had good service jobs, uh, and and were li living in good homes, and very very strong family connections. I think we're going to um, turn to the audience here for a few minutes and ask some of the questions that have been uh, that are coming up in the Q&A. Um, I'm I'm hardly uh, a photographer, let alone know anything about the technical uh, process. Uh, but um, uh, we have a question here that that does speak to that that asks asks ask you to describe your your composition process. <laughs> that that's. That's a hard, hard question because it it came so naturally to me. I, I didn't that there wasn't a a consciousness to it. it, it it's like I I would aim my camera and 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 just naturally find a composition that that you know, Eight times out of ten would would really be a good composition, and and working with with people, particularly people in action, uh, I, I would take quite a few pictures as 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 quickly as one could. I did most of my shooting with a two and a quarter uh, twin lens reflex, so I'd be changing rolls of film very often out in the field and just i it, it was so such an enjoyable process i i was so present to what was happening and n never taking pictures of someone without their permission you know unless it was a, a more distant scene and and the like I said, with the por portrait, I'd always ask if I could take a portrait. And time after time, people were there. And th there was something that it, it fed me. It, it gave me a, a deep sense of connection that often I would have difficulty having without a camera in my hand. I was a very shy person, 
But once I had the camera, I got out there, that gave me permission to be there myself. Interesting. Uh, as a kind of a follow-up for that, what led to the decision of, again, because this was to, to take pictures inside people's homes, and what was their reaction to being inside their homes? Uh, generally, th- there would be a welcoming. That there, there would be a, a, a sense that this could make a difference. They, you know, in what one case, I, I met a n- number of blacks standing out on a street corner. One of them, after we chatted a while, took a few pictures. One said, "Come with me. I want you to see how we're living." And he, he very freely let me take pictures of of his child in bed, of his child in his mother's arms, the grandmother with him. And there was never a sense of shame. It was simply, this is the way it is. And we want people to know the way it is. We're living a tough life. We have another question from the audience um, that says, how does it feel to be in the same room as those organizing and know that you're an important part of the movement for social justice? Well, at that Strathmore conference, I before it began, I, I hung my photos all, all around the walls of the conference. And, and the people could see that w- what I was doing in the conference was just part of my whole, whole project. And, and there was a great deal of respect paid to me by by the folks. And it, it, it was really thrilling to be there, as I said before, and to, to be a part of it and, and, and to do a full recording and then edit that into a show on KPFA. Because all, all, all the time I was working at KPFA and coming back and doing, doing shows periodically. The first one, I, I I, 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 <laughs> I'm demonstrating it. At that point, I, I didn't feel articulate. And so I would cut myself out and put together montages of just the voices of farm workers. It took several years before I felt confident to, to do some narration. But the first show was called Sometimes You Work a Day, based on a quote. Sometimes you work a day, sometimes you don't get nothing. If you don't get nothing, you just get home and you're hungry. So I, I, I still feel the photos, I still feel the recordings. There are voices that are, are just, in, embedded in my in my heart. Yeah, I mean it, that's that's something that I mean we I feel it. You know, I, I I feel when I see it. I feel when I hear the recordings. I mean, I think that's a testament to your to your skill, to your heart coming through in in your work. There, I, I did a 
a biography, an autobiography recording, so oral history with a, a fellow in Teveston named uh, William McKinley Buck Ashmore. And there was a something I didn't hear as he was speaking. I only heard it later when I was working editing the tapes for broadcast. And he said this wonderful thing. He said, well, as my mother used to say to me, there's nothing goes over the devil's back that don't buckle under his belly. <laughs> Years later, I looked at that and said, oh, that's karma. That's, that's what you do comes back on you. <laughs> and he just said it so beautifully. <laughs> We have another uh, question from the audience asking, um, which photographs were you were you were your hardest ones to take? I would I would say early on I visited Teveston and it was Valley Fog Day at that absolutely chilling wet fog and the kid, little kids were out playing no no real coats on just just looking you know re really pained by 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 being there but still playing with each other and doing their best to enjoy themselves and i think those were some of the hardest photos because they, they they just look so sad. So we have a question also. Um, do you have any advice for artists today who are working in support of activist communities or, or social movements? There are so many artists doing that now. That I, I think the greatest thing to do is to to, to just dive into the web and find, find the photos that are now being taken. I, I, I think the tradition of documentary photography, among other things, is now in the hands of people living that life. And, and there are younger photographers who are able to get a camera good enough to do good documentary photography. And there are people like David Bacon, who has been documenting the life in the fields and camps and the organizing efforts ever since he went to work with, as a young man with Cesar Chavez as an organizer. So I, I, I think the best advice is to pay attention to what is happening and to go out with a sense of humility to not be afraid to be there and to, and to not hide behind the camera, but to use the camera as a way of connecting. How has your own uh, development as an artist been affected by those around you, um, other, either other art firms, other photographers, um, you know, obviously growing, you know, being in the, in the, in the middle of the, Farm worker movement, the civil rights movement. There was all kinds of different 
artistic and cultural production that was happening at the time. Um, not only how are they how do they influence you, but sort of where do you think you fit in? I let's see. I, at the time, the, the one photographer I I had good connection with was George Ballas. It was you know very easy to find him since he was very public presence as as the editor of the Valley Labor Journal, and he, so I got acquainted. And often I'd stay at his house when I was out photographing. Sometimes I'd stay in camps, and sometimes I'd uh, stay at my parents up in the Sierra foothills. But I really had a good time just hanging out with George and talking about the scene, and he'd point out places that I should go go take pictures, like uh, Three Rocks, a, a notorious camp that uh, kind of a gr grifter developer, he, he bought some land, he moved houses, shacks that had been condemned by the county on growers' land, moved them to his land, and then he only charged rent for the land because he couldn't possibly charge rent for the buildings. And finally, that was closed down by the county a few years after I took pictures there. Some of, some of my, my most moving photographs were there. You know, there was one Chicano woman that I let me come into her house after greeting me with a very suspicious look that we talked a while. And later people would look at the pictures I took and said, she was such a good housekeeper. Look at that floor. It's so clean. You know, old, old splittery boards that it looked immaculate. The kitchen is so beautiful. And there, there was a shrine on the wall. It's a beautiful Catholic shrine. That's one of my favorite pictures. Just, just talking about it, I feel very deeply moved. Remember that. Um, what do you think about sort of? We were, I know before we got on online, we were talking a little bit about photography today and the kind of you know equipment they use today and the kind of um, you know I think about Photoshop and you know all these other things, Adobe and that that sort of um, can you know alter photos after the fact. And I wonder what you think about kind of the integrity of the photos that are taken at the time and uh, and what they, you know, whether they're, you know, maybe we're losing some of that with kind of the, um, the technology available today. Well, for, for me, the, the really important thing is that I have so much flexibility in working with, with my negative, with my scans. Um, a lot of my negatives, had had issues. I, I would always, when I was shooting inside, I would always shoot with natural light. I couldn't stand using a flash because it was so intrusive. And I, I, I could hold hold a camera and shoot it one-tenth, one-fifteenth of a second and get a, a good image. But some of them need sharpening. A lot of them need balancing and bringing out the 
detail and shadows and all that. So I'm able to really get images that uh, reflect my intention rather than my technical skill at that time. I I have ne never, how should I put it? I, I, I've had a very strong sense of integrity in, in how I use the photos. There, there are some, some photos that, you know, the, the snotty nose kid kind of photo that, that I just wouldn't use because it was demeaning to the kids. They couldn't have, help it that it was a cold day and they didn't have anything to blow their nose in. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your decision to um, uh, to place your collection at uh, at UC Merced and what what that means to you and uh, what you think it might mean for the valley? Oh. I can't imagine a better place for the pictures, particularly after the, the two visits to campus. And seeing the diversity, seeing the, the racial and ethnic diversity, seeing the spirit of the kids, the young people, kids are such a poor term, and and there, how 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 hard some of them were working to to adapt, because they had no no one in their family who'd ever been to college. First ones. And and I, I was able to speak to several different classes. And each time the questions, the discussion, the the the, the feeling of the of the students who was really, really very moving to me. So I, I think that having my photos in the digital collection of UC Merced Library is, is a very appropriate thing. And then visiting Calisphere and seeing those thousands of images online and being able to zoom in, I, 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 there'd be a picture of a pantry with the uh, government surplus food on the shelf and I could zoom in and read the label for, of the package of lard or whatever. So I, I, I think the, the presence on Calisphere is just amazing. And the fact, the fact that people can view them, can use them in uh, academic books, can use them in student reports, whatever. I'm very, very proud of that. Yeah, I'm excited because, you know, as you know, Tavistan or South Dos Palos or East Porterville, there's all these communities up and down the, the valley that have not really had their stories told in any in any consistent form, and I think um, you know these these photos, even if there aren't necessarily photos of places like East Porterville or wherever else, um, you know you can see 
East Porterville in South Dos Palos or in Tavistan or in, um, you know, these other sort of unincorporated communities, these, these communities of color that's, that are all over the valley. And so I think they have the potential to really serve as inspiration if they're not directly related to people's research um, that serve as inspiration and say, hey, these communities existed, they have a history, they've been there and, and maybe Ernie didn't photograph the, your particular community, but you can do that research and find those photos and find that history uh, and really sort of bring it out, you know, and, 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 and contribute in that way. Um, you know, I echo everything that you say about our students having been there for 11 or 12 years now. It's, uh, I've, it's a remarkable place. I've never taught anywhere like it. I doubt that I will ever teach anywhere like this. Uh, and, I, and I'm a huge fan and I'm really grateful that that we're able to acquire the collection and that we're able to share your work um, and give you this platform uh, to really highlight the work that you've done for the Valley. We have a couple more sort of technical questions. Um, uh, one about uh, your kind of favorite cameras. What are your favorite cameras? Uh, back in the day, I, I had a, a Mamiaflex twin lens that uh, theoretically had interchangeable lenses, but I couldn't afford more, more than a standard lens for it. And I had a, a, a used Nikon S1, the very first Nikon 35 high quality, attempting to be as good as Leica. And and then uh, Dorothea Lang would loan me her contacts sometime to have a second camera for telephoto and so forth. Next question we have is, um, was there anything that you needed to unlearn from your formal art training to do the work that you did? Uh, my, my my formal art training was with the Farm Security Administration photographer, John Collier. And he, he was very much encouraging me to fo follow the tradition and giving me very good feedback. So there was nothing to unlearn from him. Can you tell the audience a little bit more about John, uh, John Collier? The unfortunately, the the most vivid memory is is that he and my wife had shared the same surgeon for an experimental back surgery for disc disc damage, and so a great deal of our time together was visiting and comparing hospital stories, <laughs> and and that that's what I remember most, and I I, I don't remember. You know, and and yeah, the the academic setting was very much just go out and shoot and come back and show me the pictures and I'll give you my feedback and here's what you could have done, kind of thing. So that was, that was about the way that was. So you felt like there was always like strong support for the kind of work that you did, and you had a a pretty robust network of people who were supportive of the work that you did. Well, that brings to mind a, a story of non-support that uh, 
I, I think was a dramatic one. Um, after four, four years of visits out to the valley, I went to the Dion Museum and there was no photography curator. I went directly to the director of the museum, a guy named McGregor. And uh, he loved my photos and said, I would really welcome your producing an exhibition. I'll give you a budget to help you with the expenses. And I just went to work uh, printing probably 500 images to, to get a, something to choose from. And checking in with them periodically, everything was going well. I, had a couple of, of wonderful architects who helped me design a, a multimedia exhibition. And then I think it was about a month before the exhibition was to go on, on the walls, I get a letter from him saying, I'm so sorry, I'm just heartbroken. The board of directors has instructed me to cancel the show. It is too controversial and they see it as propaganda. And being an activist, I am in touch with a great network of activists in the community through my work at KPFA. I uh, brainstormed and came up with the idea of proposing to the board that I would be doing a citywide storefront exhibition, the show, the De Young Museum censored. And fortunately, I had one of my good KPFA connections, Father Eugene J. Boyle, who was in the hierarchy of the Catholic Church and was probably uh, had some of these board members as his members of his communion, he let them know that there was this risk to the reputation of the museum and instantly the show was back on the schedule. That's a, that's a great story. And I think what, what it really, I think should part, you know, impart to our audience is that you have to have community, right? You have to have a community of people who, who can share, who can brainstorm, who can you know, help you find these other ways to, to you know, to these other avenues around power, right? Because power is always going to try to censor or quiet or, or you know, shuffle off, uh, you know, those kinds of this kind of work. And if you don't have a group of people to turn to, to help with, uh, you know, uh, to help you brainstorm, to circumvent those those channels, it can be very lonely. It can be a very lonely experience. And so, I think that's a, that's such a great story, and and it really shows the kind of the power of of community and and sharing. Um, yeah, I, I'm always marvelled at the group of activists and artists and photographers that came out of that era and uh, and the kind of work that that you all uh, did together. Um, what are your sort of some of your kind of fondest recollections of of some of those times of you know those kinds of stories? Hmm. 
what comes to mind immediately is in a direct answer. I, I, I would often when my my wife needed some alone time, I, I would take my daughter Martha to the dark room with me, three year old, five year old, six year old, through through those years, and. She'd kind of help me and, and she'd hang out. And later she majored in photography when she went to college because she had such fond memories of the, the that warm, dark light of the dark room. So that, that, that was my, my immediate community. And, and then I had a, a friend at KPFA who was a volunteer. Uh, very good announcer and general volunteer and and uh, she was she would spend a lot of time both in in the dark room with me and she she was the wife uh, wife of Hank Anderson the that's how I met and got involved in the agricultural workers organizing committee and and then I, I would also spend quite a bit of time with Hank because he just knew so much about the economics of farm labor and, and the economics of the farm industry in the valley. That brings up another uh, interesting question I have, uh, uh, or interesting dilemma, I think. You know, the, the arts have been sort of systematically cut and opportunities for art education and art training um, have been systematically cut. I imagine that there are many students out there who would have wanted to or would like to photo to major in photography, but are told that it's not viable or told that it's, you know, a hobby or, uh, or for whatever other reason are told that it's not something they should be pursuing. What do you say to, to that, those kind of, um, you know, uh, suggestions to students that they shouldn't be wasting their time on something like that if it's not a viable profession? <laughs> Well, it's it's a world with there's there's a magazine and website socialdocumentary.net, and there are great photographers all around the world now. In every every poor country of the world, there are great photographers. They sometimes not not working with the best equipment, but working with a with an eye and a heart that is really right. And, and I think that anyone who wants to come into photography needs to begin with the love, the passion for being a documentarian, for being someone who is reporting on some facet of the world that needs attention. And I, I had, I never, I don't think I ever paid for my expenses until much later when I was able to earn a bit more money from the photos. And, and, and when you Seymour said, made that very fortunate purchase. But I, I was there with, with my passion, with my love of the medium, with my love of the people I was photographing. And that was, that was my compensation. Do you ever worry that with the kind of 
with the proliferation of photography and cell phones and cameras and things like that, that the images don't have the same kind of impact that they had 30 or 40 years ago that we've become in some ways desensitized to people's suffering or humanity even um, because of the proliferation or, you know, of media or, or sort of this constant bombardment of some really terrible, you know, um, images or, or videos, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, look at what that one woman did for the whole world when she photographed the death of George Floyd. Just with her cell phone, she captured a brutal murder. And we have finally obtained a degree of justice in the conviction. Can't even refuse to remember the guy's name, Chauvin. <laughs> so I, I think that we're, we're getting a flood of images, but there are images that count. And the image, and it's possible now to experience what is happening in our world. I, 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 I look at the Guardian most mornings, and they're they do a photo gallery every morning, photos from around the world. Many of them by people who are not professional photographers. I, I, I look at the National Geographic, which has, has transformed from the National Geographic of my childhood to being a, a, a channel for documentary photography beyond the nature and ethnic life realm. So uh, the, the photos count and my, my screensaver is photos I save from the internet. Every day I may see something I could toss in there. And I, I, it will move from, from a, a, a woman, one, one image just burnt into my mind, a woman in a long gown standing face to face with a squad of tax squad cops and something like like that is so deep in its communication so yes we we have a proliferation of images and if you spend too much time on facebook you see nothing but birthday parties and puppy dogs but other people like like, uh, Joe Nagib keep posting images of it that matter. I love that idea that that you say some some images just matter and they just matter more. And I, I like I love that idea. I wonder if you could speak to this notion of objectivity and the idea that that photo- photographers and journalists are supposed to maintain some sort of objectivity. I wonder what your what your idea about that is. Well, 
the guardian is is a strong answer. The guardian started cover, covering police murders at least four years ago, and for, for a long time the, the, there there was one page on the guardian where you you could go and see the thousands of murders in the U.S. that had happened. So I, I, I think objectivity is saying what is happening. So we have a few more minutes for a couple more questions from if we have anything from the audience. Um, but if there's anything that you'd like to leave us with, Ernie, uh, you know, about that you'd like to tell the audience in terms of, you know, messages or, or ideas or hopes or dreams or whatever else it might be. Oh, well, I want to come back to you, Seymour said, and, and uh, you know, assuming that we are finally beginning to wind down on COVID to, or, or even do it virtually, that masterclass we talked about. I, I would love to be able to work with the seven people who are relatively new to documentary photography and, and want, want to hone their skills and their, and their, bring their heart out. Yeah, I think that's something that we would love love for for uh, to happen. I know we were trying to get some movement on it before the pandemic, and hopefully we'll be all in person, you know, in the in the, in the near future. So, um, just let me close by saying again, um, you know, what a pleasure it's been getting to know you over the last couple of years, acquired during the the, the collection. Um, you know, what it means to us, what it means to the students, what it means to the community at large. Um, I really hope that you feel uh, the gratitude uh, that we have, um, not only for the collection, but for the work that you've done uh, for the for five or six decades uh, here in the Central Valley. Uh, and the world would be a lot better off and the Central Valley would be a lot better off with more folks like you. And hopefully we can be responsible for training another generation of of folks who would bring that same kind of energy, that same kind of love and compassion um, uh, for the for the oppressed communities in the valley that you have shown. So, thank you so much uh, for your time, for your energy, for your love, your compassion, and I hope that uh, we can get you on campus soon. Okay. Well, thank you very much.